0: Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at Candeochurch.com. John 9,
1: 1-41. As Jesus was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he left washed, and came back seeing. His neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, isn't this the one who used to sit begging? Some said, he's the one. Others were saying, no, but he looks like him. He kept saying, I'm the one. So they asked him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and told me, go to Siloam and wash. So when I went and washed, I received my sight. Where is he? they asked. I don't know, he said. They brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. The day that Jesus made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Then the Pharisees asked him again how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, he told them. I washed and I can see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was a division among them. Again they asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet, he said. The Jews did not believe this about him, that he was blind and received sight, until they summoned the parents of the one who had received his sight. They asked them, is this your son, the one you say was born blind? How then does he now see? We know this is our son and that he was born blind, his parents answered, but we don't know how he now sees and we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus as the Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. This is why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So a second time they summoned the man who had been blind and told him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I already told you, he said, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? They ridiculed him. You're that man's disciple? But we're Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses, but this man, we don't know where he's from. This is an amazing thing, the man told him. You don't know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. You were born entirely in sin, they replied. And are you trying to teach us? Then they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out. And when he found him, he asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He asked. Jesus answered, You have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and those who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked him, we aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sinned. But now that you say,
0: you see your sin remains. Trevor was born with muscular dystrophy and he only had use of one of his arms to which he used to drive his, you know, wheelchair around, but he basically needed help with everything else. Um, and despite his disability, he was one of the most joyful people you'd ever meet. You walk into the room and immediately, uh, you'd think you were best friends with him, Uh, he would light up the room. Well, unfortunately, because of his disability, two years ago, Trevor uh, died just before his 20th birthday. Maggie was born a happy and healthy little girl. Uh, And then when she was still only an infant, her deranged father threw her down the stairs. And today, Maggie sits in a wheelchair, unable to speak, unable to see, unable to do anything for herself, confined to a wheelchair. These were just a couple of the people that my wife served while she worked at a school in Chicago for children with severe and profound disabilities. And the reality this morning is that you don't have to have worked in a place like that to look around, if you just take a second, you don't have to look too far to find suffering in our world, to find pain, to find suffering, to find things that make us throw up our hands and ask the question, why God? Why? Why is this happening? Why the genocide in Myanmar that continues to this day? Why the 2 million deaths as a result of COVID over the last year? Why the cancer treatment? Why the cancer diagnosis and the ensuing treatment? Why the, why the crushing depression from social distancing? Why the pain? Why the suffering? Why the parent whose sickness progressed too quickly and why the child whose life ended too soon? It's the problem of pain. If God is so good, Why does he allow suffering? And if God is so powerful, why doesn't he stop it? Well, luckily for us this morning, what we have, what we see in the Bible is a God who isn't unconcerned with suffering. He's not aloof, he's not absent, and he's not silent about suffering. And so what we see here in John chapter nine is Jesus tackling this problem. If God is so good, why does he allow suffering? If he's so powerful, why doesn't he stop it? Jesus tackles this problem. Now, John 9 begins sometime after the Feast of Tabernacles. We don't know exactly when, but sometime after this feast that we spent basically from November to last week on, uh, Jesus has now left and he's walking with his disciples and he comes across a man who was born blind and his disciples ask him a kind of awkward question. You have to imagine that as they're walking by this guy and they ask this question that He's still within earshot, right? Like he can still hear what they're saying. He's blind, not deaf. And here's what they say. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Kind of awkward, right? Like you're standing in front of this blind guy and you're asking Jesus, Jesus, whose fault is it? Is is it this guy's fault that he was born blind now you have to understand that at this time there was kind of a there was a view that even infants you know babies in the womb they thought could still commit like volitional sin somehow i don't know how i don't know how that necessarily happens that uh this wasn't like sin nature this was like that somehow the baby like did something specifically sinful so there was a view that if if somehow that happened in the womb, then, then the child would be born with some kind of ailment. Maybe he did something in the womb to cause his blindness. I suppose you could call this the, the guilt view of suffering. The guilt view of suffering. It's the view of suffering that most pain and suffering is a result of poor personal choices. It's the view of suffering that, uh, that you, you sleep in the bed that you made. Like that our choices and our decisions and our actions have consequences. And so surely if if you're, if you're experiencing pain, then you need to assess what you did to cause it, right? If you're suffering, then it's almost certainly your fault. Now this this is the this isn't uncommon even in the Bible. If you go and read the book of Job, this was in fact the response of Job's friends, right? You remember the story of Job where Job a uh, wealthy man, rich, you know, God has blessed him abundantly and now all of his things have been taken away from him. His children are dead, his possessions are gone, and his friends, after a little bit of silence, which is a good thing to do when you're sitting with someone who's suffering, is to just be present, right? But his friends do a good job with that until they open their mouth, and they begin to assert this guilt view of suffering. And they go, Job, surely if if this has happened to you, then you must have done something wrong. Surely you are the cause of your suffering. It's the guilt view of suffering and we modern people haven't really progressed all that far past job's friends right i guess today you could call this the conservative view of suffering the conservative response it's it's a response to suffering from a kind of view that has that has such a high value of individual freedom and personal responsibility that when someone is suffering, then it must be an indicator that they either did something they shouldn't have done or didn't do something they should have done. Is that your reaction to suffering this morning? Without knowing the situation, without really knowing the person at all, do you look at pain and suffering in the lives of other people and you immediately jump to what in the world did they do to put themselves in that situation? It's really kind of a Western form of karma, isn't it? What goes around comes around. But in one breath, so that, that's, that's the guilt view, that's the conservative view, we'll say. But in one breath, what, what Jesus' disciples express is also another view of suffering here. They ask him, who sinned, this man or his parents? Who sinned, this man, the guilt view, or his parents? You could say that this is the victim view. The victim view of suffering. It's, it's the view of suffering that, that if you are suffering, it's surely because it's the result of somebody else's wrongdoing. Not yours, somebody else's, right? that if you're experiencing pain, then you must be a victim of some sort of oppression, whether that's oppression from, an, from another person or oppression from a group of people or oppression from, a, from some sort of ambiguous system. I suppose you could call that view of suffering today, maybe the, you, know, you could call it the victim view, maybe you could call it the liberal view of suffering the liberal response where most, if not all suffering is viewed through the lens of power. So if you are suffering, it's because you are being oppressed by somebody with more power than you. Or at least maybe it's because you weren't, you didn't have an environment conducive to your success. And so you're, you're not maybe a victim to somebody else's power, but you're maybe a victim to your own environment, your own your own situation, the, the thing that you have no control of or over, right? Like, like if only we change the situation, then, then your life, then you could be happy. It's the victim view. Now notice that the disciples in their question had a basic assumption. Their basic assumption right here at the beginning was who sinned? Who sinned? It's the assumption that sin and suffering are always connected. Now, in one sense, this is true. In one sense, this is true because remember, before Genesis three, things were great. That before the fall of humanity in Genesis three, Pain and suffering did not exist, but because of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God and his good purposes, sin entered the world and suffering with sin. And so there is a sense that sin and suffering are connected. And there is absolutely a sense. And we see this all throughout scripture. It's not just your own experience. We see this in the Bible that, that there is suffering that is a result of poor personal choices. That what you do actually does matter. And we also see that there is pain and suffering as a result of oppression, of powers at be exercising their authority, not for the good of the people below them, but to oppress them and to exploit them. We see that in scripture and we see that in our world. But it isn't that simple. It isn't isn't that simple that when you approach suffering to only have a guilt view of suffering and only have a victim view of suffering. And so when the disciples ask Jesus, which one is it? Is he guilty or are they guilty? Jesus creates a new category. He creates a new category for us on how to think about pain and suffering. And it's, uh, we could call it the neither category or the so that category. Look at what Jesus says here in verse three. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Jesus answered, this came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. In other words, The category that Jesus is creating right here in in a response to pain and suffering is that while all suffering is a result of sin in general, it isn't always a result of sin in particular. All suffering is certainly a result of sin in general, that we live in a fallen world in a fallen state, but all suffering is not always a result of sin in particular but instead this came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. Don't miss this, don't miss this. When they were looking for a cause, Jesus was looking to a purpose. When they were looking to a cause, Jesus was looking to a purpose. You see, the years of blindness for this guy He was blind from birth, like the years of blindness, the years of sitting there listening to his friends play and never being able to join in. Cause how are you gonna catch that ball? You can't see it. The years of sitting there listening to his dad work in the garage, but never being able to learn the family business, never. No, we see later on in this passage that this guy has now become a beggar. Like apparently his needs have exceeded his own family's ability to be able to take care of him. And now he is out on the streets begging because of his blindness. What Jesus is saying is that none of this was meaningless. That not one minute of this guy's suffering because of his blindness was meaningless, but it was so that God's works might be displayed in him. The question this morning for you is, do you believe in the God of the so that's? Do you believe in the God of the so that's? See, it, it, for most of us, it isn't horrendous suffering that causes people to not believe in God. It isn't horrendous suffering, it's pointless suffering. See, we can understand if somebody suffers you know, dramatically, if somebody even suffers to the point of death because they were trying to save somebody else's life. Like we can kind of wrap our minds around that because we can, we can at least see a point to it. Like, oh, well they died, but it was because of this. Our issue isn't with horrendous suffering. Our issue is with pointless suffering. But do you see the problem with that? Do you see the problem with not believing in God because of pointless suffering? The problem is that for us to be able to say that any, suff- any kind of suffering that we see is meaningless, that assumes that we have a, an infinite view. It assumes that we can see from, from the beginning to the end, the point of everything. And therefore, if I can't find a reason for it, then there must not be a reason for it. Elizabeth Elliott, maybe some of you know that name. She tells a story of uh, some friends of hers who uh, she would go and visit her friends at this Welsh sheep farm. I practice saying that a lot because that's a tongue twister, Welsh sheep farm, Welsh sheep farm try it. So she went, she would go and visit her friends here and she would describe this scene. So her friend was a farmer and a shepherd. And every year he would have to take his sheep and because sheep will get parasites like growing, you know, within their wool. And so what he would have to do is he would have to take these sheep and he would have to plunge them into a vat of antiseptic right? And so as, as they're kind of like walking up the ramp, uh, the sheep are, you know, flailing around, they don't know what's going on. He's grabbing them and then getting out. And then Mac, the sheepdog is snarling at them to, you know, force them back in. And pretty soon as they're kind of coming up and, and they try to spin around, John, John, the shepherd grabs them and plunges them ears, eyes, nose, everything into this vat of antiseptic. and, and, Here's, here's what Elizabeth says as she describes watching this scene. She says, And as their Lord and master was pushing their head under, drowning them at least as far as they could tell, their panicky little eyes would look over the edge of the vat, and it was easy to see what they were thinking. What is God doing? And isn't it true? True that the distance in wisdom and knowledge and understanding between a sheep and its shepherd, that that distance is infinitely greater between us and God. Church, just because you can't see the purpose of pain and suffering doesn't mean that there isn't one? Do you believe in a God of the so that's? Do you believe that there is a so that somewhere in your suffering? Do you believe in a God that is so in control of all things from the greatest injustice to the, the greatest inconvenience that he governs all things for the for the glory of his name and the good of his people. That in fact, God is so in control that when you lost your keys this morning and you're kind of freaking out, you're like, I'm gonna be late. Like that God is so in control of everything that your lost keys even have a so that. Have a greater good for his glory and your good. That there's a so that for your difficult boss that there's a so that for your lost job, that there's a so that for your struggling marriage, there's a so that for your sick child, for your dying parent, for the cancer treatment that may or may not be working, for the chronic pain and for the sleepless nights. Do you believe in the God of the so that's? You see, instead of looking for the why in suffering Jesus is telling us, begin to look for the how. It's not a bad question to ask why is this happening, but what Jesus is saying is that that there there are greater categories than that that you sinned or that somebody else sinned, that there is a purpose for your suffering, that instead of asking why is this happening, ask how in the world could God possibly use us to display his glory and to work for my good, to open our eyes to see that there is another category. There's a God of the so that's. You see, most blind people can at least see a little bit of light. I didn't realize this. I thought if if you're blind, then it's just utter darkness. In fact, most blind people can at least see light. And so what happened here is Jesus, when he encounters this blind man and he spits in in the dirt, makes some mud and puts the mud over his eyes, what's most likely happening at this point is that Jesus is actually making this guy's world darker. And what Jesus tells him to do is trust me in the dark. You thought that you were at your lowest of lows. Like you thought that just because you couldn't, like you were blind and you couldn't play with your friends, you couldn't learn the family business, you couldn't do anything. You're out here on the streets begging. You thought that, that you had hit rock bottom. In fact, you could actually go even lower than that. Here's some mud on your eyes. You can't even see light. Trust me in the dark. You see, trusting Jesus may mean that your world ends up getting darker. Believe in the God of the so that's so that you can then trust Jesus in the dark. That you can walk in obedience in the dark. Brothers and sisters this morning, obey in the dark. Trust him in the dark. You know, you, if, if you're around here for a while, you'll, you'll often hear us talk about the sovereignty of God. That, that's kind of like a, that's a Bible word, you know, the sovereignty of God. What does that mean? That simply means that when we, when we say we worship a sovereign God, what that means is that we wor- worship a so that's God. That's what that means. That God controls everything for his glory and for your good. Believe in the God of the so that's. So, this guy encounters Jesus, not under the guilt view, not under the victim view, but under the so that's view of suffering. And Jesus puts mud on his eyes, and in verse seven, this guy, he goes, he washes, and he comes back seeing. And basically, from now until pretty much the rest of the chapter, what's happening is that there's a dispute going on about what in the world happened to this guy. And it's almost like as as you as you listen to Sarah, read through it, and as you read through it again, it's as though th- what this guy says doesn't really matter because you see him explaining over and over and over again what happened, and they just refuse to believe him like do you notice in the in the passage that his description of what happened continues to get shorter? I imagine it's kind of what happens when i'm I'm describing something over and over to my kids like. Initially, it's kind of a detailed explanation. And then as I get more frustrated at their lack of understanding, I just like to it down to its most basic words, right? Like this is what's happening because what's happening in the mind of the audience here is that Jesus can't be who he says he is. And so he can't have done what you say he did. They had already made up their mind about Jesus. And so this thing that Jesus did that is beginning to soften this guy's heart towards Christ is in fact the very thing that continues to harden their hearts toward Jesus. They've made up their mind. No story, no argument, no testimony, no nothing is gonna change their mind about who Jesus is and what he did. Until eventually, this guy finally responds, I imagine in frustration in verse 32, when they say, he can't, he, couldn't, he can't be who he is. He can't have done what you say he did because this guy's a sinner. Ta- say that he's a sinner. And this guy says this, verse 32. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. But they made up their mind. In verse 34, you were born entirely in sin. Clearly they had the guilt view of suffering. And and are you trying to teach us? Then they threw him out. Look at this guy. And they're like, dude, two minutes ago, you were blind. And surely it's because you did something to deserve it. And now here you are like good for nothing sinner trying to lecture us. And they throw him out. They excommunicate him from the religious and the social life of Israel. Like this this is first century cancel culture, isn't it? Like you're you're not saying what I want you to say, you're not believing what I want you to believe, and so just get out of here. They silence him. They silence the very witness that God, that, that could have been used to soften their hearts. It only hardens them. The real Jesus offended them and hardened their hearts toward them. You see, there's something really dangerous about coming to church every week. I don't mean physically, like we've got people who uh, really care about our physical safety here, but I mean spiritually. There's something incredibly spiritually dangerous about you coming to Candeo every week. And here's what it is. The danger is that no one remains neutral in hearing who Jesus is and what he has done. No one remains neutral. Like every week when you walk into this building and you hear the message of Christ, it forces you to have a response. You don't remain neutral. Even no response is a response. Apathy is a response. And what happens every time that you hear about the person and the work of Jesus Christ, Jesus said he is the light of the world. What happens every time you hear this message of Christ is that his light is either melting your heart like sunshine on a glacier, or it's hardening your heart like wet cement on a summer day. You are either becoming softer to Christ warmer to Christ as you continue to hear about Christ, or if that's not happening, then you are becoming harder toward Christ, colder toward Christ. The danger in coming to Candeo every week, to this church, to a church that preaches the gospel, that speaks from scripture, is that you would hear the message of Christ and not respond, but be hardened in your unbelief but be hardened in your affections for this great and glorious Jesus Christ. See what we have this morning is a dirty, blind reject and a bunch of squeaky clean religious people. Two kinds of people with two totally different responses. What caused one to be warm toward Christ and the other to be cold. Verse 39, Jesus said, "'I came into this world for judgment "'in order that those who do not see will see, "'and those who do see will become blind.'" What causes one person to be warm toward Christ and the other to be cold? Isn't it that the ones who receive Christ are the ones who actually see their need for him. That the ones who receive Christ actually see their need for him. Like this guy, day after day after day, born blind, day after day, he's sitting there going, I'm blind, I'm blind, I can't see anything. I can can hear stuff, I can maybe see some shadows, but I can't see anything. If I'm going to see, it's gonna take a miracle You see, it was his physical need that prepared him to see his greater spiritual need. But isn't it true that the ones who don't think they have a problem are the ones who are most blind when the solution comes about? Like, if you don't think that you're sick, you see no need for a doctor. You're not gonna notice, because I'm not sick. Why would I need that? Do you see your need for Jesus this morning? Do you see your need for Christ? Don't harden your heart. Don't let another sermon go by without responding to Christ, without receiving Christ, without letting your heart be melted by the light of Christ to respond in faith, to trust him in the dark to obey in your suffering, to believe in the God of the so-that. See, I don't have the answers for why all the pain, all the suffering in this world. But what I do know is that not long after Jesus healed this guy, not long after this happened, that Jesus too would be rejected. That Jesus... Two would experience injustice, that Jesus would be spit on, he'd be mocked, he'd be stripped of his clothes, he'd be beaten and whipped and crucified on a Roman cross. And as he hung there, you could probably look at Jesus and say, why God? Why this suffering? But isn't the answer the same? So that God's works might be displayed in him. Oh, church, with the darkness of the cross and the glory of the empty tomb, be God's light to us in our suffering and the hope of our souls. Let the light of Christ soften your heart this morning, whether you're walking through pain and suffering or whether you have yet to even receive Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that because your suffering wasn't meaningless that ours isn't either. Oh God, would you by your spirit soften our hearts once again this morning to Jesus Christ, that we would respond in faith, that we would respond in trust, that we would respond in obedience, that we like this man, as we see Jesus, we would fall to our faces and worship him as our Lord and savior. Jesus, you are the light of the world. Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning? We pray this in your name. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.